great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. Coming up later, something that is no deal at all, what it costs for health care in the United States, how people are really getting fired up about it in many parts of the country. I want to tell you what a big concern high-cost health care has become. So, speaking of the U.S., there's new data out from the Census Bureau that finds that we are stuck in concrete. Well, not literally, but that we as Americans are moving at a much lower rate, much, much lower rate than historical. So, in a typical year, roughly... One in five Americans move. That was till very, very recently. That had been pretty much what it had been for generations. Today, it's one in 10 Americans move each year. The implications are many in this situation. I mean, it's not good for people who work in the real estate industry, uh, agents, people who work in real estate closings and all that, that there's just not the steady stream of buyers and sellers that we've had historically because people are staying put. One of the primary reasons is that two-income households, there's not the disparity as there used to be between the two incomes in a household. And so it becomes a real hard decision to move for a better job opportunity for one because it may be a big cost or consequence for the other who may not be able to duplicate a career level, a job, a pay level they have right now. So with people moving less frequently, there's an angle that's never really talked about, and that is you know that may actually make you more money over time You know why? Well, there's an enormous cost every time you buy a house. There's an enormous cost every time you sell a house. So even if you've had a nice gain on your home, a lot of it gets eaten up in the cost of relocation. And I'm not talking about the moving truck or whatever to move your stuff from one place to another. The commissions, selling expenses, Buying expenses, they add up. You figure 10% in, 10% out. And so someone who stays put for an extremely long time in a home will actually find that that home will likely lead to more net worth gain for them than if they move every so often. Now, there are exceptions, and there's one in particular that's important. If you live in a neighborhood that seems to be deteriorating, then you're going to find that it's worth it, not moving for a job or anything else, to go ahead and sell that home and move on. Because when a neighborhood starts to deteriorate, it can be decades before the neighborhood may recover. And in the meantime, you may feel less safe. 
the neighborhood may become less stable, and the home value you're counting on may vanish right before your eyes. Ryan is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Clark, how are you? Great, thank you. And I want to thank your son for his service to our country. Yes, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, we're really proud of him. What's he up to? Well, he's about, I think he's entering uh, his fourth week of uh, basic training. So he's he's right in the middle of it all right now. Oh, how's he surviving that so far? He's doing okay. We get a we get a phone call every couple of weeks, and he's he's making it. Okay, <laughs> it's tougher on his mom, I think, than it is on him. <laughs> well, how can I be of service? Because I can't help him through basic. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, he wrote us a letter, and he asked us about the uh, retirement plans that he's getting ready to sign up for. He mentioned the thrift savings plan, which is the traditional one. But, he definitely uh, wants to do is, the, th- let me interrupt you right there. He wants sure. to get right in from the get-go in the thrift savings plan. The right. T- the TSP well, they, is fantastic. Were, yeah, he mentioned that there was a second plan that if you enlisted after 2018, after January, which he enlisted before that, um, that everybody's being put into is the blended savings plan which is a little bit different. And I, I wasn't familiar with, with that and the difference because I've kind of looked it up online a little bit, but I'm, I'm not sure which one. He, he's going to have an option to do either one. So. so the blended plan, he can opt into that through his pay. And there is a very good guide online to the blended retirement system. And okay. how the thing works. So the idea is that the military specifically is trying to de-emphasize the traditional pension plan. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to get people, it's almost like employers who get rid of a pension plan and instead have you go into a 401k where the company offers some level of match. Right. So... I think the question really is how long he thinks he's really going to want to stay in the service. Right. And and that, I mean, he's not going to be, I don't know what his plan is going to be. You know, we're just going to have to take it a little bit at a time right now. But I think he would make a career out of it, the 20 years, if, if he really enjoyed what he was doing. But, uh, you know, I mean, he's just, just getting started, so we're not, not 100% sure right now. Okay, so that is the hard choice. He's, he's got to make it. How old is he? He's 19. At 19. <laughs> Just in basic. It's so hard. I mean, you know, very few people make it to 20. Right. It's a very small percent. So my feeling is that going into the TSP for a teenager with no sense of how long they'd serve would make the most sense. Okay. Okay. And that's just a guess. And as I said, there's a very lengthy, well-written booklet that is available online explaining the options and how to pick. And there is no right answer unless, let's say, your son was from a family where generations were 20-plus years 
in the military, and that's just what everybody in the family does, then I'd say that would be an exception. Otherwise, I think TSP. Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate the help. All right. The other thing, once he finishes basic, um, which yeah. branch is he on? Navy. Navy. All right. I would like him to join Navy Federal Credit Union. It'd be an yeah, advantage. He already has. Okay. And he should consider if he has a car joining USAA. He already has done that too. All right. <laughs> Well, he's, we're on top of it. <laughs> he's doing all those great things. Well, good. He's got he's got a good dad who's very involved in this stuff. So I'm making sure he's he's in in everything, taking advantage of everything he can. <laughs> well, that's perfect because once he's in, he's in for life in those wonderful organizations. Connie's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Connie. Hi, Clark. How are you? Great, thank you. you I'm here ste- to talk about a European river cruise, and I hope you can help me. I'll do the best I can. Hey, several friends and I have been talking about taking a European river boat cruise, and I wondered if there was one way better than the other to book it to save some money. So the river cruise market is really strong right now. And do you have a particular European itinerary that you want to do? Or are you flexible on that? Well, we're flexible. We've been talking about a couple of different ones, but nothing's written down in stone. The more flexible you are about the dates you can go in 2020, the cruise lines, the river lines you're willing to go on, and the itineraries you're willing to do, the more money you'll save. That's actually more important than where you book the cruise, whether you use one of the high-volume cruise-only agencies whether you use Costco Travel, wherever you choose to book is secondary to you being able to be flexible enough that you can grab a deal. Okay, I think we can be flexible. All right, so I'd like for you to spend as much time as you can till you're bleary-eyed on cruisecritic.com. Okay. And you'll be able to read about the various river cruises and see which ones, there's two criteria here, positive or negative, which ones you're going to feel like fit your group and would be ones that you put on your list to watch prices for, and which ones you're definitely not going to want to go on by, by reading the reviews at Cruise Critic. And then you can follow prices if you come up with a matrix of what dates you and your friends can all go. And you just keep watching for deals available because cruise rates are so dramatically different week to week because of the cruise lines are able to look and see what kind of um, occupancy it looks like they're trending towards. And when they see booking soft on a particular week, they'll then put that week on sale with special promotions if they see a week is really booking strongly or they know historically that a particular week books strongly, then they're not going to offer deals. So would this Cruise Critic help me track that? Cruise Critic is really, although they have some pricing information there, Cruise Critic I like more for the actual picking out like a surgeon with a scalpel which ship's you're going to want to go on by reading the reviews people post there. Okay. Because, you know, there's a lot of competition now 
in the river cruising market. It's like the hottest part of the cruise industry right now in terms of growth. So for sure, when should we have it booked? Uh, Yes, we're a little ahead of the game, but... No, a lot of people plan way ahead of time, book really early, and if that's what's comfortable for you, then uh, when you see something that's like a really not just promoting that it's a good deal, but you can tell because you've been looking at prices, you can tell this particular week on this ship is a real bargain, then you just buy it right then. Okay. And one thing, if you're going to book far ahead, and by the way, my producer Joel just flipped something around for me from Cruise Critic. They have a briefing on how river cruise prices work. Oh. And so that should be really helpful. It's an older article, but the information in it should still be really useful to you. All right. Um, One thing, booking either a traditional cruise or a river cruise, you got to have trip insurance. Yeah, we've talked about that already, and everybody agrees. Okay, or you can use a credit card that comes with free trip cancellation, trip interruption coverage, if you just for using that credit card to book your cruise. Okay, never heard of that. Yeah, that's a. It's not a common benefit. Usually, you're going to have a trip insurance charge of about six percent of the cost of the trip. I hope that you have a great time together. Nathan's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Nathan. Hi, Clark. I just uh, have a um, a question regarding my son who flies quite a bit, and I know you do. And uh, several weeks ago, you mentioned about congestion and things you used to get, and he gets that now. And I just wondered if you had mentioned something when I heard you, and I don't remember what it was. I thought it was a spray or something, and it's just driving me nuts that i can't remember it yeah what i do is go to the dollar store although you can pay much more if you wish at a chain pharmacy and i get a saline spray a saline spray it's been very helpful to me with the amount of air travel i do Mm -hmm. and the saline spray is just something it like just keeps the nasal passage is moist because when you fly the plain air dries you out leads to more likelihood of infections and stuff and so using the the saline spray has been very very helpful to me other people use them and they say it didn't do anything for me but it has been very useful for me and you used it for a good while didn't you oh I, i still use it when i travel okay Well, I knew it was something like that because you and my son have two things in common. In addition to the flying, he also has a Tesla, and I I thought that either one or the other was causing that congestion. So it (laughs) definitely not the Tesla. (laughs) But he really loves it. Oh gosh, he's he's crazy about that car. Does he let you drive it zero to sixty? No, no, he doesn't even let his wife drive it. What? Okay, so I'm I'm crazy about it to the point that a stranger will come up and start asking me, and I'll say, oh, get in the driver's seat. Let me explain to you how it works. Wow. One time I'm going to do that, and it's going to be the last time I see my Tesla, right? Right. Well, it's just like a, it, being in a spaceship to me when I'm in there. It's uh, it's really something, but, uh, but I appreciate it, and uh, I'm going to pass this on to him and everything. All right. Well, best to him, and I hope that it helps with the uh, nasal infections and stuff that he gets from 
so much air travel. You know, they're not called the germ tube for nothing. Flying is uh, is really something that is disruptive to your body. And when you do it a lot, like I fly more than, on average over a year, more than one flight a week. And the effects, well, you know, you should never cry over, you know, somebody who gets to travel and see the country and see the world. So that sounded really really whiny from me, but there are the health issues that do come up from it. Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. So people in America are starting to grab onto something that they really didn't understand before. And there's a poll that was done by the Financial Times of London. Why are they polling this about us in the United States? But anyway, it was about uh, Americans' attitudes about health care and the costs of health care. And so Americans used to think that the cost of health care was their premium or a portion of a premium if they work for an employer and parts paid by the employer, most paid by the employer and the rest by you, and then your co-pays or deductibles. Well, now those deductibles and co-pays have gotten to be huge. And so even if you have health coverage, you're much more exposed to how unbelievably expensive health care is in the United States. And in fact, in the survey done by the Financial Times, they found that health care costs are, by many Americans' belief, the number one economic threat to our nation. And they're not wrong. Health care being 20% of our nation's economy is insanely ridiculous. You know, we've had all these debates going back more than a decade about how we're going to insure people in the U.S. and Obamacare or not doing Obamacare, compliant plans, non-compliant plans. But what's finally become clear to more and more Americans is it's the overall cost of our health care system in the United States that's the real issue. I mean, there are huge swaths of the country where over 40% of Americans now say that health care costs are the greatest threat to American economic prosperity. And I can hit you with some of the states. Florida, you might expect because of an aging population. Um, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, and Missouri Oh, oh, also, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, and all those states, people rank health care as pretty much the biggest threat to our economy. And we have got to address all the problems with how health care is delivered in the United States because we cannot afford as a nation to prosper. We cannot prosper in competition with the rest of the world with one out of every $5 of our economic output being swiped by health care. 
I mean, when you figure in most other developed countries, it's one out of $10, one out of $12, that gap is devastating to us. Yeah, you know, from time to time, I tell you ideas of what I would do about that. The reality is we got to address it. And a lot of people are going to be unhappy about it. Like the thing I talked to you about recently, how the hospitals are all freaking out because the Trump administration wants to force them to tell you before you're treated what it actually costs you for having treatment. So you can choose whether or not you want to be treated at that place. Seems pretty simple to me. You and I should have the right to know what something's going to cost before we end up buying it. Bert is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Bert. Hello, Clark. Bert, you are thinking of doing a favor to a friend, apparently. Uh, yes, sir. What are you thinking of doing? Well, uh, I have a friend who needs a vehicle for a short period of time, so I was going to loan her one of my cars that I don't don't use. We have three cars. My wife and I use two of them regularly, and one of them's kind of off and on. So I was thinking of letting her borrow that third car, but I was looking to see if there's a way to protect myself insurance-wise so that I wouldn't bear the brunt of any accident. Yeah, you face, you face a lot of liability risk when you allow your friend to operate the vehicle. How much would you guess the vehicle's worth? Probably five or 6000 at this point. So an alternative is you could sell the car temporarily to the friend, you know, that you would hold the loan paper and you defer that any payments have to be made for, uh, you said you're going to lend it for six months? Uh, yeah, maybe a month or two. Oh, a month maybe or not two. not quite six months. Yeah, just kind of a short term. I mean, the only way to really completely protect yourself is to have a change in ownership and then when she's done with it, that it's registered back in your name. That is that is the best way to protect yourself. If that's okay. more work than you want to do, do you have an insurance agent or do you use an 800 number company? I usually do online, so I don't work directly with an agent. So most of my quoting and whatnot has been just looking online. So the insurer you're with, you don't do through an agent. It's, it's with the company itself. I would call the company and ask, say, you know, you exactly what you told me. I mean, just lay it out to them and okay. say you wanted to know, is there a way to ensure lending a car for two months to a friend? Okay. And if, if they say not on your life, then you've got to go through the more complicated thing where you do sell the car and then she sells it back to you when she's done with it. Something like that, if I did where I would sell her the car, and I'm putting air quotes in here, but if I sold her the car in which we did a title transfer, would it be worth it to get, uh, I guess it's always worth it to get it in writing that, okay, this car is really coming back to me at the at the end of all this. Well, what you do, what you have to do instead is you have a note that she doesn't have to pay on for the oh. period of time you're agreeing she would be driving oh, wow. the vehicle. And then payments would have to start at that point, and you make the payments retroactive to the first day with interest. Oh, I see. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean the person will honor that and pay or would return the car as agreed. 
Uh, right. you know, once you give somebody there. possession of your vehicle, you got to hope that they're 100% honorable. Yeah. But I, I know there's probably some expense involved with transferring a title. She would have to buy insurance on it for the period of time she'd be operating it. So it's not like she's going to have completely free transportation. But if you are doing something out of the kindness of your heart, and at the same time you don't want to end up with a big opening for liability, if right. your insurer says, we don't want anything to do with that, you're on your own, that's when you know you've got to do it the traditional way of signing it over to her. Okay. Okay. Makes sense. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's good. Thank you. Because I had an alternative if it was going to be much shorter and you wanted to help somebody out. If it was just oh. for a few weeks, you could front her the money to rent a car for a few weeks. Okay. And then that way the rental's in her name, everything about it is in her name. But if it's going to be, sounds like, a few months, then it does become something where you really have to think about your liability as you're thinking through to your credit ahead of time instead of after the fact. Ken is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Ken. Hello, Clark. Ken, you got a story you want to share with people, and you want to share it as often as you want and hope that people will listen. Is that right? <laughs> Something like that, right. What's your uh, scoop? A lot, of, a lot of people are doing podcasts and seem to be earning enough to make it a full-time job, so I'm looking at starting one, and I, I know the production side of it, but I'm wondering if you have some tips on how to make it financially viable. So uh, usually, if you're going to make it financially viable, you have to do more than just the podcast. You have okay. to be extremely active on social media. You have to have a written word kind of website as well, where things you talk about in your podcast are available. Are you doing an instructional podcast, inspirational? What kind of topic area is it generally? Well, my... My day job is as a journalist for a business news weekly, so I'll probably leverage that to do life skills, motivational things, you know, how to network for a job, time management, dealing with difficult people at work, work-life balance, those sorts of topics. Think about how perfect the podcast is with the written word that you would have at your companion website. Right. Because, you know, you and a podcast can say, you know, if you want to see my step-by-step -step on how to motivate other people in the workplace or whatever. Go to my website right now, and I'm going to walk you through it. But okay. you have a base from what you already do as a journalist. But getting to the point where a podcast is profitable requires a sustained and growing audience. There's a website I've talked about in the past, eofire.com. Is that something you've heard of before? No, uh-uh. So eofire.com is all about how to make a podcast profitable. Some of the stuff is about how to do the nuts and bolts you already know, right. but there's special emphasis there on how you actually can earn a living from a podcast or at least generate net income from a podcast. Good. Okay, I'll check it out. And how active are you on social media? Oh, well, you know, just for my own personal things. I'm not doing anything for business necessarily. 
So with this, I mean, you would really need to think of a, you know, using social media yourself as a personal thing, you know how, how people interact with it. So you have to start thinking of it from the standpoint of your podcast and how you generate traffic. Because in order to get advertisers today, you need a minimum sustained audience of 2,500 people. Okay. And so for a while, you'll be podcasting to a smaller audience and building up loyal followers. And you do that with consistency, how often you put out the podcast, and then building the traffic with time. And, okay. uh, you know, I've had many years as a podcaster, and I will tell you it requires patience and stick-to-itiveness to make it go. If I may ask, is the podcast part of your revenue stream, or is it just kind of a, a bonus thing? Definite part of revenue stream. Okay, okay. But, you know, well, we, have, we have been at it, I think it's 14 years. And so there were many years that it was really just, for lack of a better term, a brand extension. Right. And then it became a profitable thing, and then it became a significant producer of revenue. But it does take time. But, you know, if content, you know, as a journalist, content's everything. And so if you generate content that people love, that's really how you make it happen, particularly if you already know the basics about how you execute a podcast, content that people find compelling and particularly unique. You know, that's the advantage I've had with podcasting is not necessarily compelling, but certainly unique content. Do you have any comments on the length? Well, I do a longer podcast than most. I would say somewhere around 15 minutes is a timeline that I really like. But there are a lot of different opinions about length of podcast. The, the other advantage, though, let's say you're focusing on a particular topic in a podcast and you need more time for that one. Give it more time. You have that flexibility. And if you got something that is a topic that's very meaningful, don't use having a certain set number of minutes as an arbitrary thing where you're just talking in circles to get to where you've talked those number of minutes. I see. Okay. Thank you. And best of luck with it. It's such a great thing because people get to listen on their schedule, not necessarily yours. And I think that's what's so great. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Brooke is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Brooke. Hi, Clark. Thank you for taking your time to speak with me today. Of course. How can I serve you, Brooke? 
Yes, so I was wondering, I am with a larger bank at, right now, and I'm looking to switch to a smaller credit union, and I live in the Atlanta area, but I also want to be able to have the ability to go to a location in case I need to do something in person, and I need to look for a checking and savings account, and possibly with the option of getting a credit card through them that has a good cash rewards program. What would you recommend? So what's changed with the credit union market is there are now credit unions in most any of the midsize and large metro areas of the country that have gotten to enough size in a metro area that they have enough branches, many times as many as a dozen, and offer everything you asked for, where they offer checking, savings, credit cards, a full array of things just at better deals than you'd get from a bank. You mentioned you live in Atlanta. Atlanta is an example of a metro area that has at least a half dozen credit unions that have real size to them with a large network of branches in your metro area, and you'd have no trouble being able to find one that would do everything that was on your checklist. And you see them every day when you drive around. You may not notice them, but they're there. But I've got an easy way for you to find them and and see who's available to you. Ready? Yes. There's a website called C-U-N-A. C-U-N-A, mm-hmm. but it's a .org. And if you go there, okay. there's a, a find a credit union button, and you're able to put in your zip code, and you can see the credit unions available to you and be able to look at who the big ones are. And then it's so simple, because just go to their websites, and I would start with the credit card offers they have and see which one has the best cashback card, maybe, that would work for you. Because credit unions overwhelmingly offer free checking. Credit unions, without exception, offer better rates on savings than banks do. So you mentioned the convenience. That's the only real qualifier you'd be looking through and looking for. And I would say in a metro area as large as Atlanta, a dozen branches or more would kind of be the cutoff point. Okay, great. Does that help? Yes, that helps a lot. Thank you so much. All right, well, best to you. And I'm so glad that you're seeking out the best kind of bank there is, a credit union. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.